Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Morning, church. You guys ready to get in God's Word? All right, good. No hesitation. I love that. Revelation chapter 3 is where we're going to be in the Bible today. Revelation chapter 3. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll jump into today's message. Father, thank you uh, for our church family. Thank you for our community that you've placed us in. Thank you at this exact year, you wanted us to be this exact age, uh, with this name, these friends, this family. Uh, Father, I pray that you would give us greater clarity as a result of listening to this message for a short period of time on what it is you desire for our lives. I pray if there's conviction that needs to happen, you'd do that. If there's comfort that needs to take place, you'd do that. Encouragement, challenge, whatever it is, God, you want to do. I pray on behalf of all my brothers and sisters in Christ those that are watching online, those that are here, that we open our hands to you and say, will you do with us whatever you want to do with us right now? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've gotten rid of your Christmas tree or not, but I had not until yesterday. Just pause, let you judge me. Yes, it is February. I don't have Christmas lights up and uh, trying to be a good neighbor, but I live outside the city limits, and so I can't just drag my Christmas tree out to the road and uh, them take it away from the curb for me. And so I have to decide every year how I'm gonna get rid of my Christmas tree. Last year, I took it out back, cut it up with a chainsaw, and uh, there were no sermon illustrations. God's still doing miracles. Anybody who's wondering, uh, that is true. Uh, The other day, I was at lunch with a friend of mine and we were talking about it. He lives outside the city limits as well. And I said, you know, i got to get rid of my Christmas tree. I drug it out to the fire pit in my backyard. I was planning on burning it, but it's been raining so much. The tree's not that dry. And then he said, I have a flamethrower. Would you like to borrow it? And somebody just yelled no. If you're at home watching, you might be writing in the comments right now. No, no, no. This is about to go really bad. Uh, He said, now here's the crazy thing about this. This guy's a friend of mine. We've been friends for about a decade. He's gone to our church for about a decade. He's heard about me burning my back deck on fire. He's heard about me catching a lawnmower on fire. He knows these things. He said, would you like to borrow it? He didn't say, no strings attached. Not, I'll come over and show you. Now, this is how we should do it. He said, come to my house, pick it up. You can borrow my flamethrower. So I picked up his (laughs) flamethrower. Yesterday, I uh, burned my tree, and I brought a little video so you could see it here. Fiery furnace! Pastor's kid. There you go. Bible story. <laughs> she didn't quite get how high that thing's going. Oh, there we go. You was, did good, Father. It, it is uh, it's quite, the, quite the blaze we had going in our backyard. In fact, at one moment, my wife was starting to look at the other trees like, we're going to have a forest fire back here. This is going to be bad news, but uh, you can watch that for a while, but what you can see is it does eventually go out. In fact, that's the interesting thing about any fire. It doesn't matter if it's a forest fire or it's a campfire. Almost every fire eventually goes out. And that got me thinking about my spiritual life. And how sometimes my passion for Jesus fades. And I was reminded this week as I was studying the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today that there was a time I remember when we first started this church. We had about 40 people, and we were gathered together, and I was sharing the vision for what the church was like. And I invited my realtor, the guy who helped us buy our first house here in the Triangle area, and he didn't know Jesus. And I just wanted him to know Jesus, and he came 
And afterwards, I said to him, I said, what did you think? And I wanted to talk about the fact I just shared the gospel, and, and maybe he would want a relationship with Jesus. And he goes, well, you really believe that stuff? And he was talking about my passion more than it was about the content. But then I wondered this week, I know more now than I did then. I've had more experiences, but do I love Jesus more? Or is the passion faded? And I think back to like your, maybe your salvation. Think back to when you answered a call for God to, to, for you to do something, to step out by faith. And, and I wonder, do you love him more right now than you did then? Or is the fire faded at all? There's a song we used to sing when I was in college. Some of you might know it. Maybe it's older than some of you. <laughs> older than some of you have known Jesus. But there was a line in it that was always convicting to me. And the line is, if ever I've loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. I brought the song. I won't sing it for you because I love you. Uh, but I'll put the lyrics up on the screen. The uh, verse goes, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I've loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. And there's each verse, and then it always ends with that. The next verse goes, I love thee because thou hast first loved me. That's biblical. And purchase my pardon on Calvary's tree. Talking about the cross. I love thee for wearing thy thorns, the thorns on thy brow. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. We don't sing that song very much here. In fact, I don't remember us singing it here. But if you were singing that song, would you be lying? Do you love Jesus more now than you ever have before? And if not... Why did that passion fade? Maybe you've never loved Jesus. I understand that. But if you have loved Jesus at one time more than you love him right now, then today's message is for you. Because today what we're going to talk about is how to reignite a passion for Jesus. How to reignite in our hearts that zeal, that enthusiasm, the love that was once there. We're doing this series called Love Is. And we've been talking about God's love for us, our love for other people. And, and right now we're just going to pause in this series and talk about what happens when you lose that love? What happens when that love fades? How do you reignite that passion for Jesus? And so, like I said, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 in our Bibles. It's the last book in the Bible, for those of you who are maybe new to the Bible. Uh, some people get intimidated by this book because they wonder, you know, is, that, is the beast a tank? Are the locust helicopters, and they're trying to like figure out all the symbols. Let me just pause. Let's make it real simple. Uh, the word revelation just means unveiling. The full title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Jesus is revealing himself. And the outline of the book is actually really simple. Uh, it starts off in chapter 1 where a guy that he loves a lot, the Apostle John. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he's called the one whom Jesus loves, a really close friend of his still alive. Uh, he's been imprisoned on an island called Patmos, and Jesus, who's been resurrected from the dead for a long time at this point, appears to him, eyes burning like fire. It's like, it's a crazy image if you read uh, Revelation chapter 1, and, and, and when John sees it, he falls down as though dead, and then John, or Jesus puts his hand on him and says, I'm going I'm to give you a message. I want you to write down the things that I say, the things that you hear. And then chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters that Jesus writes to seven churches, we're going to be looking at the seventh one. In those churches, there's all kinds of issues. Sexual immorality, false teaching. Some of them don't want to deal with the pain in their lives, so they just keep themselves really busy. Some of them, it's like they've fallen asleep. He says, wake up to one of the churches. This last church, he arguably gives the worst rebuke to this last church. Now, remember, the other ones, sexual immorality, false teaching, won't deal with issues. But look what he says to this last church. 
Verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, and so this is Jesus telling John what to write, the words of, and his given titles for himself, the amen. A lot of times we'll say at the end of a prayer, amen, or if the pastor makes a good point, I miss Steve Trexler watching online, I know that. Uh, I miss him being here at least once a sermon, even if it was a terrible sermon. Amen from the back. Amen means true. What Jesus is talking about here is he is the truth. The words of the amen and the faithful and true witness. And so he gives these three titles for how he is the truth. So he's saying, what I'm about to tell you is the truth. The beginning of God's creation. He's the arch ruler of everything. In verse 15, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Some translations say spew. Some actually say vomit, which is a legitimate translation. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. They were well known there for making clothes, by the way. And salve to anoint your eyes. It was also a medical community. They're very educated, very wealthy. So that you may see. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Here he's talking to a church whose, whose passion, whose zeal for God has faded. And see, the problem for many of us is we're hopeful. Like, you're hopeful. I'm going to say something from this passage today that's going to ignite that into you, and then that passion's going to burn for you, or, or some of you, you know, see some teenagers here, you might go to camp, you know, go to, you know, Camp Oak Hill or New Life Camp or one of the camps here in town, and, and you're like, this summer I'm going, to get re- I'm going to get on fire for God again then. So if you're going to go to a conference, and the problem in our culture is we want these quick fixes. Here's what the quick fixes are like. It's like this. It'll ignite something in you. Now, I actually have fire here today. Be careful. Glad you sat in the front row. So glad you're here. And we get it going, but then it's gone. And so it's the camp. It'll, light, it'll ignite something in you. The sermon today, it'll ignite something in you. But as fast as it's there, it's gone. And what happens for many of us, and some of you are plagued with this in your Christianity, is that you think that's the cycle of Christianity. Like, I, I just got to hear a good sermon, listen to a good podcast, read a good devotional book, make a new commitment, make another decision, go to a camp, go to a conference, and it poof, and then fades. As fast as there, it's gone. What Jesus gives us in this passage of Scripture is way better than that, but it's harder than that. It's like, get on a diet, lose five pounds, all right, stop the diet. Five pounds back up. And some of you think that's the journey of the Christian journey, and it's not. And so what Jesus shows us here in this passage of Scripture is not a, not a quick fix, but it's a process for us to reignite a passion for him and to continue to have that passion burn regularly in our lives. And the first part of it is we must see the ugliness of our own self-reliance. We must see the ugliness of our own self-reliance. Do you see what he says to this church here? He goes, your problem is you're wealthy. Oh, is it sin to be rich? No, because what happens is you start to depend on your wealth. And he says, you don't see, that blinds you from actually seeing. You don't think you need anything. And so now you can't see that you're actually spiritually poor, spiritually blind, spiritually naked. He's speaking directly into things, into this culture. And so what does Jesus say about them? He gives this word picture, hot or cold, you're lukewarm, and you make me want to spit you out of my mouth or spew you out. You make me want to throw up, is what he's saying. 
The other night, my wife and I were hanging out with a couple other couples. We were talking, and my wife looked at me and said, can I tell them? I had no idea what she was talking about. Have you ever had that scenario? I'm just like enjoying my food. Can I tell them? Can you tell them what? What was that? What were we just doing? I don't know what just happened here. But I just looked at her and I smiled. I said, okay, like, here we go. I don't know what's about to happen. And she starts to tell about how I have a terrible gag reflex. We learned this when we first had kids and they would throw up. And then I would come in the room, try to be a good husband, try to help, and I, like, as it's happening, like, I'm, can't, the smell is just making my stomach churn. Now, my wife is a nurse, so she's got a stomach of steel, okay? And so she's in there cleaning stuff up. I'm over in the corner throwing up again. Now, when the kids get sick and I come in, she's like, you, out. Like, I don't want to clean up your stuff, too. I can come into a room, and it's like, ooh, ooh. All starts moving. Can you imagine if Jesus looked at you and that's how he felt? Make me want to spew. Make me sick. That's what he's saying to this church. To this church. These are believers. And he's saying, you make me want to speak. And he gives this imagery. You've got to understand the, the culture there at this time. Laodicea was part of a, a three-city triad. You could call it a triangle. Uh, to, it was Chapel Hill and Durham. No, just kidding. It was uh, the Colossae in Hierapolis that were right by them. Colossae was interesting because they were known for their cold water spring that they had. It was a, a unique thing for that town. They were backed up against about an 8,000-foot high mountain, and they had a cold water spring there. It was refreshing water, life-giving water that people would come there to drink because it tasted so good. Hierapolis, on the other hand, was known for their hot water. They had these hot springs that were there that had minerals in them, and people would actually travel there on vacation to take healing baths. It was like a spa there. Laodicea was located in a great spot. They were really wealthy because they were at a, a crossroads for trade industry. However, they weren't by any water sources. And so they had to pipe their water in from Hierapolis. That was the closest of the two towns. And so it would travel miles, this hot water with minerals in it, but it wouldn't be hot by the time it got to the town. And everybody in Laodicea knew, we got an incredible thing going here. We're educated. They're really wealthy. They've got great business. They've got medical schools there. Like, it was, it was interesting how parallel they are to Raleigh, by the way. But we don't have good water. And everybody knew that. And so when Jesus used this imagery, I don't know if you've ever been to a place where the water actually makes you sick. You know, maybe you've traveled and you go on a mission trip or something. They're like, don't drink the water. I don't know if you've ever done I've done it before. I was on a construction mission trip one time, and they were mixing cement. And I was the cement runner. And I came out, and there was this hose. And I'm like, inside, the water that they had for us tasted like bleach because it was bleach. And then we go in. I didn't want to go. So I grabbed the hose, rinsed myself off. I was doing all right. Started to drink it. I was doing all right. Drank about a gallon of it throughout the day. Was doing fine until the next morning, and I wanted to die. And have you ever done that before? And Jesus is going, that's what your water's like, and that's what you do to me when I think about where you're at spiritually. But why? It says here in the text, for when you get the words for and you're studying their Bible, there's a reason. Here's the reason, because for, for, verse 17, you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and here's the problem, and that means I need nothing. I've got this. He's talking about their self-reliance, and it's so ugly, it makes Jesus want to vomit. It's not real, it's not true. He says the true condition is that you're pitiable, you're, you're poor, you're blind, you're, you're actually shameful, you're naked. But because of your wealth, you don't see it. And think about, think about people that are rich. I don't know if you've uh, read articles before or seen different things. How about Mark Zuckerberg? 
uh, founder of Facebook, or you're going to steal Facebook, whatever, it depends on what movies you watch. And uh, he runs and owns Facebook now. And so I was reading an article one time that he actually is so wealthy, lives in this really nice neighborhood in California. He started to buy the houses around him because he didn't want them to build tall houses and block his view. And so then I thought, well, as a Christian, we're commanded to love our neighbors ourselves. I guess if you are your neighbor, you're actually doing it. <laughs> Boom. Like if you could just buy all the houses around you. Like can you imagine being so wealthy, you actually were your own neighbor and bought all the houses around you? But he's not the richest guy in the world. Right now, the richest guy in the world is a guy named Elon Musk. I don't know if you know him. It's about $200 billion is his net worth. Or it fluctuates between 185 and 200. It's just $15 billion, whatever. That's <laughs> ridiculous, whatever. And I was listening to him give an interview the other day. He was actually talking about colonizing Mars. Process the space world, which he was, uh, Snakey was mentioning sci-fi. Like, no, he's serious. He's like funding this thing. Can you imagine if you were a realtor for Elon Musk? Mr. Moss, where would you like your vacation home? Wilmington? How about Boone? He goes, how about Mars? <laughs> it's like a whole nother level. Now, here's the problem. When most of us think of rich, we think of guys like that. Because everybody, except right now, Elon Musk, whenever we talk about rich, you can always think of somebody who's got more than you. But when you, you talk about what the Bible defines as rich, is you have more than you need for today. And so that's almost everybody. I don't want to be insensitive to somebody who's just lost their job, but you probably got extra clothes. You probably got food in your pantry. In fact, globally speaking, the panhandlers that you drive by on a regular basis are rich compared to the rest of the world. Statistically, depends on what stats you look at, 80% of people live on less than $10 a day. Panhandlers are making more money than that. If you look at really conservative stats, it's 70% of people. And so, seven out of ten people in the world are making less than $70 a week. So, if you make $100 a week, you're like astronomically wealthy. And I know that most of us make more than that. But forget all that. I was just thinking, what about the church that's being rebuked? What if they were able to come and see how we live? And just into the future and see, like, we carry these phones in our pockets that have all of human knowledge on them. Everything there is to ever know, you can find on your phone. What do you think that a Laodicean would say if they saw us with a phone? Or if they came into this church service and they realized the air that we're breathing is actually conditioned to the exact temperature that we would like it to be. Isn't that a wild thing? Like, we've grown up with that, most of us, but that's a, that's a wild concept. You're so rich, you control your air? Are you kidding me? And they're the ones being rebuked because of their wealth is blinding them. But we're astronomically more wealthy than they are. I wonder, I wonder if Jesus would say the same thing to us. I was just thinking about this message and the imagery of fire this week. I was thinking about the fireplace in my house. I don't know if you have one of those in your home or not, but here we are in North Carolina. It doesn't get cold, but except for a couple months, we're in a couple of them, right? We're days periodically within those months, and, and uh, we don't use our fireplace a lot. But uh, during those couple months, we will turn it on. It does not require a flamethrower to ignite. You guys will be happy to know that. I just go over and flip a switch on the wall, and it turns on, and it's nice. It changes the ambiance, and uh, it'll actually, it's pretty powerful. I don't know if yours is or not, but it'll actually heat the entire downstairs of our home. Uh, but here's the problem with that. We don't need it to, because you know why? We have heat, but we have a fireplace. It's always there. Anytime we want to go over and hit the switch, we can turn it on. And it's nice when it's on. Do you see where this is connecting? 
How many of us in our spiritual journeys the same way with our relationship with God? He's always there. And it's nice to have him involved. It's nice to engage in that relationship and go hit the switch, read your Bible, pray, go to church. It's nice. But you don't really need him. And most of us wouldn't be so bold to say that, but we live like that. We've got, I mean, if something bad happens, you've got insurance. You've got a medical plan. Even if you lose your job, many of you got savings accounts. Do you really need him? And many of us, if we're candid, we go, well, I need him to breathe. Yeah, that's true. But do we live like that? Or do we live like, I got this. I got a plan. I got a backup plan. I got a plan C. I got insurance policies. Everything's, we're so secure. Do we even need him? And then I think about what the scriptures say when, when Paul talks about the end times and he's writing to Timothy and he says, you know, people are going to be lovers of themselves and they're going to be lovers of money and they're going to be disobedient to their parents. But you know what he ends up saying at the end of that? He says, there's people that are going to have an appearance of godliness, but it lacks power. And then he says, avoid those people. And then I wonder, are we those people? Because I think most of us here, you've learned the Bible. If you've been going to Southbridge for a while, we, we teach the Bible. We don't just give, give like talks all the time. We're talking about the Bible. You know that God is all-powerful. The biblical word, omnipotent, all-powerful. You know that, but do you need that? Like in the way that you live your life. Now, and here's the reality. If you're not living by faith, you don't need his power. Because what do you need his power for? If you've got this, if you can really do everything, you can make it to church on your own. You can read the Bible. You can do these principles of the Bible. You can manage your finances. You can take care of your kids. You can, if you've got everything, then where's the power? Where's the dependence? And so if there's no dependence, that means there's self-dependence. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in this passage that's so ugly to him. Now, before I condemn you, let me just say this. Let me take some responsibility here as a church leader. The church is responsible for most of this in America, by the way, because the way that we pitch the gospel, we share the gospel like it's an infomercial. Have you thought about infomercials? They present all the benefits up front, like here's what it does, and what it doesn't matter what the product is. Here's all the benefits of the product, and then the cost is so low, you'd be foolish not to buy it. In fact, you're probably missing out. We're going to give you two of them. Like, pick a product. It's a Flowbee. It'll cut your hair and clean your car and make a meal. It's got 19 patents, 47 uses. And then you can get one right now. All you do is pay the shipping and handling. But you're talking is too fast for even me to understand. And then at the end, they're like, and it's only $19.95. And if you order now, we'll give you two. I say, what does that have to do with the gospel? Think about how many gospel presentations go. I'm probably guilty of doing it sometimes. If you trust Jesus, he'll forgive you of your sins. He'll build your self-esteem. He'll heal your wounds. He might even fill your bank account if you're at one of those churches. And all you can do is pray a prayer. We may never see you again. You don't get to baptize. You don't get to do anything. You don't start giving. You don't have to do, read the Bible. You're good. You're just, you're just good. Just pray this prayer. And if your whole family, you can, right now, we'll give you two. You and your wife can both come down. And do you know what happens in the church world? So I'll just give you a little revealing. So then on Monday, we'll have a Monday meeting. We'll talk about church and what happened yesterday and go through it. And it's like, we can't get anybody to serve in the nursery. Why not? Because they bought what you sold them. They think it's all about them. They think it's a religious commodity that's being handed out like candy. And the problem is, if you look at the, what the American church presents and you look at what Jesus says, they're not at all alike. Let me just read you a passage without commenting on it. I'll try not to at least. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. We'll put the verses on the screen. As they were going along, Jesus and his disciples, uh, the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, 
But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, I understand. I love your family. Yeah, take, they're good people. Good. Sorry, try not to comment. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Everyone who wants to come to him but doesn't want to pay a cost, Jesus says, don't come. We say, it's all right, God's cool. But is what we're presenting of him really what the Bible presents of him? He says it makes me sick. So what do we do? What do we do? We receive his rebuke. Look at verse 19. That's the second thing. We, receive, we see the ugliness of our self-reliance. We receive his rebuke, verse 19. Verse 19 says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Mm. Before we get into the zealousness and repentance and the discipline and the reproving, did you notice what he said here? Those whom I love... And I want to just pause and say pastorally to some of you that really struggle with trying to prove something to God. Maybe you grew up, maybe you saw Debbie's testimony on our Facebook page this week and you had a similar experience where you felt like you always had to try and climb the ladder. You always had to try and do something. You always had to try and prove something to God. And here I want you to see his, his unconditional, undeserved love. He's talking to a church that does not love him and he's saying, but I love you. And those whom I love, I discipline Discipline is not an aspect of his love that most of us like. In fact, most of us, we think of love as letting somebody do whatever they want to do. And that's how we function. That's part of our culture. And our, culture's to- our culture has spent millions, if not billions of dollars to teach us what love is that's a contrary love to the Bible. And one of the things that it says is that love is letting everybody do whatever seems right in their own eyes. Now, let's, see if, let's just practically talk about if that happened. If you came over to my house for the Super Bowl today, we're watching the game. And, ima- and this isn't, this isn't, if you do come over, this is not true, but just imagine, <laughs> just in case you're wondering, uh, that on the back of my house, we have the deck removed. We're doing remodeling or something, but the deck's not there, but there's like a 20-foot drop on the back of our house. And uh, you're about to walk out the back door, and I don't say anything to you. I'm a jerk, FYI. That's the interpretation of that. But our culture would tell us, I mean, if that's what they feel, they've got eyes, they can look out the back door. I mean, they've got to figure it out for themselves. And how much do I have to hate you to let you hurt yourself? That's not love. Here we see an aspect of love from God that many of us don't like. It says, those whom I love, and this is for everyone whom he loves, I reprove and discipline. He's going to rebuke us, and there's going to be discipline in our lives. Now, here's what we need to know about discipline. And so, let me just pause here before we read any more of the verse. Discipline from God, if you're a follower of Jesus, is not not, if I was writing an email, I'd put it in all caps, not punishment. Discipline, when you're a follower of Jesus, is not punishment. God's discipline in your life is not for retribution. That's a word that means punishment. It's not for retribution. It's for restoration. God's discipline in your life is not for retribution. It's for restoration and purification. You see, what God's doing is he's not making you pay for sins. Sins have already been paid for at the cross of Christ. You don't have to pay twice. 
So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When he's disciplining you, sometimes he's disciplining you. It's not even because you've sinned. It's because it's part of the process of his transformation in your life. Sometimes it's because of sin, but it's never as a penalty for sin because it's punishment for sin because that already happened at the cross because when Jesus went to the cross, he had lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He's dying a death. He's our substitute in our place at that moment. He, this says in the Bible, the wages of sin is death. He's paying that debt that we've earned because of our sins at the cross. It's paid in full. He says at the cross, tetelestai. That means it is finished. There's no more paying for sins. If you follow Jesus, sins have been paid for. So his discipline is not for your punishment. It's for your restoration. It's for your purification. It's for your transformation. And he disciplines every child. He says it in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And the answer is, yes, we have. Please tell us. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises. And if you have a copy, a physical copy of the Bible, underline this. Every son whom he receives. No one likes that. And we do lots of stuff with it. A lot of times God's disciplining us and we try to ignore it. We try to escape it. We try to suppress it. We try to avoid it. We'd run from it. We do all kinds of things with God's discipline. Just think about it. And especially in a wealthy culture, there's so many options. There's so much distraction. And so we escape his, his discipline with Netflix. We escape his discipline with video games. We escape his discipline with food. We escape his discipline with reading books. We escape his discipline with more education, with our job, with our th- ministry. Like fill in the blank, pornography, medication. You, Having a hobby is not wrong, just to be clear from this sermon. You can read a book, play a video game, do what you want. But when you're doing it for the sake of avoiding the pain in your life, that's escape. What if, when those moments came, like just a hypothetical, think about this. What if we sat in it? What if we received it? What if we ask God, what are you doing in it? Because a lot of times what we do when pain comes is we ask the questions we can't get answers to. Why? Why is it happening? Let me tell you something. You're not going to know why, okay? I can do a whole sermon series on why. Go through 10 different Bible passages. We can talk about why in each one of these instances. But then the problem is that you then have some, somebody gets cancer. Somebody gets in a car accident. Somebody you love dies. And then you're going, what's God doing here? You don't know because we don't have a Bible verse to show you. You need God to tell you, and you're not, you can't, we're not good at interpreting circumstances, and God's doing thousands of things in every circumstance. So the reality is you don't know. So why? Why does, he, why does he bring pain into the lives of many people in the Bible? Well, sometimes it's because of sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they take communion in sin, and he says, this is why some of you are sick and some of you are dying because of your sin and the way you're flippantly treating communion. But we read Job, and it didn't have anything to do with his sin. In fact, it didn't have anything to do with him. It's actually a battle between God and Satan. There's a spiritual battle taking place that he gets talked about in Ephesians chapter 6. The spiritual battle, that's what's going on, and that's why you're involved in it because you, you exist, Job. Or, or you look at the disciples. Remember the disciples in the story where they're in a storm in the boat? Do you remember how they got in the boat? They were obeying Jesus. Jesus told them to get in a boat. They got in a boat. Jesus knew there was going to be a storm. And so you could say it's not because of their disobedience that they're in the storm. It's because of their obedience. Sometimes there's pain in our lives because we're obeying God. Sometimes there's pain in our lives because we disobeyed God. Sometimes there's pain in our lives that don't have anything to do with any of our behavior. You look at the guy in John chapter 9. He's born blind. The disciples assume it's because of somebody's sin. He says, who sinned? Him or his parents? Jesus says, neither. He doesn't go to the source. He goes to the result, and he says it was for the glory of God. 
The why is an end result. It's not a beginning thing. You guys don't even have the right kind of thinking. To, we can't comprehend this. And so here's the reality. You don't know why. And you don't know how. You're all going to, everybody in this room, if you live for another week, you're going to experience some pain, some level of pain. But you don't know how it's going to happen. So don't waste your time asking why. Don't waste your time asking how. But what? 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 We know what God's doing. He's transforming us. He's promised us, Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work and he's going to complete that work. Romans chapter 12, he's going to renew your mind through his word, through life, through circumstances. He's going to mold you and shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. It's called sanctification, setting you apart from this world. He's going to make you look more and more like Jesus as you follow Jesus. And that passion burns within you. But how does he do it? He says right here, discipline, rebuke. So what if we received the rebuke? What if instead of running or escaping or questioning, what do you want to do in me? And maybe the pain isn't because of my sin, but maybe there's some sin you want to expose and bring to the surface. We all have it. Or maybe in this moment, you're trying to teach me something about you that I, I viewed incorrectly. Maybe it's because of something my church said. Maybe it's just something I've always thought. Maybe it's something I've made up. Maybe it's some relationship I had with my dad, and then we call you father, and I've transferred that stuff, and it's sinful, and I'm weeding all that out, refining it by fire, like gold. Maybe. Well, we know that he wants to transform us. So what if we start, stop questioning and resisting and running? And we say, what, if you, what if we prayed this? God, do whatever it takes in my life to bring revival in my heart. Would you pray that? I dare you to pray that. God, do whatever it takes to bring revival in my soul. Put me on fire. Ignite a fire in me that you then fan the flames of, that you keep going. But what if it is painful? What if it, he uses that too. I was talking with one of the families that got mentioned last week, the Duckworth family in our church. Their son Titus left this earth unfortunately, and from my perspective, way too soon. You didn't know Titus. Um, he was a loving little boy, seven years old, was born with sickle cell anemia, battled his entire life. He was about to go to a procedure that they thought was going to reverse that, was going to lead to his healing. There were some complications, and his life here on this earth ended. And last Saturday in this room, his uh, mom and dad actually led the few. I mean, we, we assisted them as their pastors and things, but uh, mom gave the eulogy for her son. So she got up and she talked about his smile, his laugh, and his battles, and going to hospital trips, and reading stories. And at the end of her eulogy, I almost lost it. She said, Titus, I love you with all the numbers. Think about that. And then, then dad got up, Thermone, Thermone Duckworth, if you want to pray for him. And he preached the message. He preached the sermon at the service for his son. And he talked about pain. He said, it's real. Talking about the darkness of it, he's preaching from Romans chapter 5, talking about God's hope, his peace. He gave multiple points about pain, and in one of them, he gave an analogy about a bear in a trap. He talked about releasing that bear from the trap, but he said in a spring-loaded trap, in order to release the trap, you have to apply more pressure before you can release the trap. So anybody that would be putting on more pressure, you'd assume is not loving, but in reality, it's for the sake of release. And I wonder, for us, we're running from it. We're high. God wants to bring us to a spot of a breakthrough. And we're trying to avoid it because we don't want the pain. But what if in the pain, that's, part, that's what he's doing to bring the revival? 
Think about Paul and Silas when they're in jail and they're singing songs. And it's while they're singing these, who knows, maybe they're singing, my Jesus, I love thee. They're singing songs in the prison and then the prison doors go blasting open. There's the breakout. Let's go. But it was in the pain and the difficulty because they were being obedient, by the way, in that passage. God's doing a work. Jonathan Edwards says that, that when the revival that he was a part of happened, it started with a young man who was admired and loved in their town, who died unexpectedly. And he preached a sermon from Psalm 90. Read that. It talks about how fleeting life is. That was a heavy sermon, I'm sure. And then young people in the church started getting serious about God, and they started studying the Bible on their own. They started meeting together in prayer groups. It started with young people. And then, um, then there was a very promiscuous woman in their town that came to Christ, and she started inviting her friends to church, and all these rowdy people started coming to church, and God started changing their lives, and it ended up overflowing from their town in Northampton into 32 different towns. It became a, an awakening revival that took place. What if, what if God wants to do something in our lives? Like, we're, we're, people are so upset about this pandemic and, and the rules and all the restrictions. We want to get back to life as normal. What if normal is bad because in normal we're not needy? Listen, I want to get back to normal just as much as you do, but what if God's going, that's the worst thing I could do for you? I read an article this week, we don't have time to get into all of it, in the Wall Street Journal, that's not a Christian writing, by the way, that talked about maybe God's using this pandemic for repentance and revival. I'll post the article on my Facebook page so you can go read the details of it. Why, like, non-Christians maybe see something we, we are missing? God, do whatever it takes. How, how, do we, how do we do this? How do, we, how do we receive this rebuke? How do we receive the discipline? Well, the next part of the passage, we, have a, we must accept his invitation to intimacy. We must accept Jesus' invitation to intimacy. Look what he says, verse 19 and 20. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. We've read that. So be zealous and repent. We haven't talked about that part yet. Behold, look, pay attention. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and he with me. And we talked about the culture there that was happening with the water system. But you know they're also living under Roman oppression. That means at any moment a Roman soldier can come to your house, open your door, they don't have to knock, and demand that you give them a meal. And until you feed them a meal of their liking, they don't have to leave. So get, think about the context they're living in. And then Jesus, by the way, king of all creation... That's a higher rank than a Roman soldier. Those of you who aren't familiar with the military. And he says, I'm standing at the door, knocking. And I wonder what kind of knock it was, too. Oh, and by the way, this is a church. Get the image. It's church, and Jesus is out. What if we were all meeting in here, and Jesus is out at the front door? Hey, can I come? You mind if I'm a part of that? And I think, I think about this and the image of it, and maybe you're going to watch the Super Bowl tonight. Sometimes they show a clip of when a soldier comes home and the dog comes running out and the wife's there and the kids are there. I, a friend of mine uh, was a former Marine, a Marine veteran, and uh, he was sitting in the back row of Second Service last week. I hadn't seen him in nine months. He works now for the Department of Defense, and he's been in Afghanistan for the past nine months. So when the service was over, I V-lined right over to him. Thank you. I don't know if you risked your life. I don't even know all the stories, but thank you for all the things you've done so that we can live in the comfort that we live in here. We were talking. Could you imagine if my friend came home, goes to his house, his son's like, I think dad's at the door. Keeps playing his video game. Wife's like, I'm busy. Daughter's playing with her toys. What kind of knock do you think my friend would do at that moment? 
Because I think about when I read this passage and I get Jesus standing at the door and knocking, I usually picture this. Kind of sheepishly, like, is anybody home? Maybe you think about it. Like, you, have, you ever see the people that hide on the trick-or-treater to get all their lights off? I see you moving in there. Hey, how many's in there? Jesus is knocking on the door of a church that he's just said makes him want to puke. I don't think it's, he's not forcing his way in, but I got a feeling it's like, hey, hey, I know you're in there, and I want to, what does it say? I want to eat with you. See, in ancient Near Eastern culture, to have a meal with someone was intimate fellowship. It meant acceptance. Their meals would linger. They were long. They weren't, you know, drive-through windows were like totally foreign to them. Like none of this idea of fast food and let's get this done and we've got to eat something so let's nourish our bodies. No, it's like this was an event and it was a time for us to share life together. In fact, when I read this passage, it makes me think of another story that happened in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, there's these two guys that are walking about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus has died three days earlier. He was crucified. He's been in the grave. He's resurrected. And they're walking. They're talking about these things. And a guy walks up to him, starts talking to them. And they say, well, are, you out, are you from out of town? It was Jesus. But God stopped their eyes from being able to see that it was Jesus. And so they start telling Jesus about Jesus. They're the only two guys in the world that have ever done that. How amazing is that? Like in heaven, they're like, we're the guys that told Jesus about Jesus. <laughs> Nice to meet you. Glad you're here. Can I introduce you to Jesus? It's kind of what we do. And so they're talking to Jesus about Jesus, and they're walking down the road, and they don't understand that it's Jesus. And they're saying, we were hoping that he was the redeemer of Israel. We were hoping that he was the Messiah. And then Jesus opens the Bible to them and teaches them from the book of Moses. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, how all of those verses actually point to Jesus. And then takes them to the rest of the Old Testament and the prophets and say, all of the Bible actually points to Jesus. And then they go and they sit down and have a meal. And when they break bread, then their eyes are open and they recognize him. And look at, look at what it says in Luke chapter 24. It's on the screen. When he was at a table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished. I don't know how that happened. Did he slide away? Or did he like really vanish? I don't know. And then it says, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? He wants to dine with you. He's knocking. How? How do we open the door? What do we do? Verse 19, be zealous and repent. Zealously repent, I think, is a way that we could translate this passage. With earnestness. I, I want you. Repentance is when you turn from whatever you're going towards, your own self-dependence or sin or whatever it is, and I'm turning to you. I want to depend upon you. Do whatever it takes, God. Do that in our lives. So that's how we're going to end the service. We're going to spend some moments in repentance. So the worship team's here with me. They're going to sing some songs over us, but in these moments, let's just spend a few moments talking to the Lord. So when you, when you look at this passage, do you see yourself? Do you see your own self-dependence? And now you know what it looks like to Jesus. And so you don't have to stay there. You don't just need a sermon to like ignite something in you. He's inviting you into intimate relationship. It's a regular thing that can keep that fire going in your life. But repentance has to be a regular part of your life because sin's a regular part of our lives. 
And so we stop turning to our own self-dependence, stop building all that security, start walking by faith. And so I want to give you some moments to talk to him about that. We're just going to bow our heads and close our eyes and go in prayer. And, and I'll lead us in some prayers to start, but then, then you continue as you feel led. There's sin specific that you want to talk to the Lord about. You do that right now. You don't even have to wait for me. Father, we come before you. We turn to you. If there's anybody here that doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray that they wouldn't become more religious today. If there's anybody watching online that just popped on and they didn't even plan to watch a service, would you save them right now in their living room? Would you have them place their faith in what your son Jesus Christ did for them on the cross when he allowed his body to be broken? His soul to absorb the wrath that you had for all of sin, for all of humanity, and he paid that debt on the cross. And he finished the work of paying for sin. That we didn't have to do it. We don't have to clean up our act. We don't have to stop cussing or stop acting some way or stop doing something. You've taken care of that. And that you're going to transform us to change those things. God, will you do a transforming work in the lives of those who already know you in this room? There's those of us who've grown cold, that are not as on fire for you as we once were. Will you reignite a passion in our hearts and our souls right now? Do whatever it takes. I pray that for the people that I love. Not because I want pain. I don't want pain. I don't want them to experience pain, but God, will you do whatever it takes in my life, in the life of this church, in this city, in this country, so that we would turn to you? And you just pray as you feel led, and the worship team's going to sing a song over us right now. If you feel led to sing with them, you're, you're more than welcome to do so.